You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. verses 14, 15, and 16 together, and then we will pray. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do bow before Your Word this morning. We pray that You would show Yourself powerful in Your Word and that through the explanation of it, the preaching of it, the listening, and our exposure to it, that You would sanctify and edify and equip us, Your people, that this would be attended by Your presence and Your Spirit and Your power, we do ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Lord was gracious to me the last two weeks that I'm speaking on the subject of complaining. He has given us these wonderful storms, both on a Saturday night, both dropping all the snow and plowing us in. And he has actually been gracious enough to test our resolve to see if we are willing, really, to live a life free of grumbling and disputing. And so I ask you, how have you done last week and this morning? Because this morning when I woke up and I saw all that snow, the first thing I thought of was, did you think of it too? I'm supposed to handle this without grumbling or complaining against the giver of all of this good weather. And so instead, I have tried to resolve to just thank the Lord for it and see it as the blessing that it is. And um, I was thinking this last week, because last week we talked about complaining. I was thinking this last week, how do, what is it that causes me to complain? When I'm prompted to complain, when it, I feel this grumbling inside of me and this desire to carp about something, to complain about something, what is it that prompts that? What is it that sparks that? What is it that causes it, other than the fact that it is so deep-seated in human nature to be a complainer that some people do it and they don't even realize they're doing it. They just do it. It just comes second-hand, like second nature to us. Other than the fact that it is just so deep-seated in my sinfulness, what is it that sparks a complaint? What happens around me that makes this complaining and grumbling nature manifests itself. I came up with a few things. and I'm, I'm suggesting these because I don't think that these are unique to me. In fact, I think that some of these are probably just typical, common human experience that we all share. One of the things that sparks complaining for me is when I am inconvenienced. When I'm inconvenienced. I'm inconvenienced in traffic. I'm inconvenienced in my home. I'm inconvenienced at work. My day doesn't go as it should. Something breaks down. Something doesn't happen the way it should be. And I am inconvenienced. And when I am inconvenienced, then I am prompted to complain. Another thing that causes complaining, and I'm sure some of you can agree with this one as well, is not just being inconvenienced, but having my expectations not met. Right? Can you agree with that? Having my expectations not met. My children don't meet my expectations. My employees don't meet my expectations. My boss doesn't meet my expectations. My neighbors, my friends, my relatives, my church, my church leaders, my companions, the guy in front of me in traffic or behind me in traffic. 
We all have these expectations. Your spouse, your children, they don't measure up to your expectations. And so you have these unmet expectations. And when our expectations are not met, then we complain about whatever it is that has caused our expectations to not be met. It might be that you're inconvenienced, or it might be that my expectations are not met, or it may be just that I have a critical, bitter, grumbling, discontented spirit. And that can cause it as well. In some instances, that's just it. It's just the disposition of my spirit. Some people are just bitter, critical, cynical grumblers. And there's, we talked about this last week, there's nothing you can do to change that. There's nothing you can do to satisfy them. There's nothing you can do to make things better for them because the minute you take away the grounds of one complaint, they will find something else to complain about because they're just, that's just the way their spirit is. Those are the, they're the type of people that no matter what you suggest, no matter what happens, their response is always the same. Yeah. And that's their response. They make wonderful government employees. They make wonderful employees down at the DMV. They make uh, wonderful waitresses, don't they? Those are the type of people that you want to be around all the time, right? They're the type of people that you want to pay their check every month as you, and every week as you hire them. Is that true? Those are the last type of people you want to hire you want to work with, right? Some people just have that critical cynical, bitter, negative spirit that no matter what happens, it's just, it's not the way I wanted it. I'm inconvenienced or my expectations are not met. You know, complaining really boils down to this. It boils down to you and I fashioning a God after our own making, a God whom we expect should think far more highly of us in planning out what goes on in life, a God who should bow his will to our whims, a God who should meet my needs, a God who doesn't measure up to my expectations, a God who in some way should think more of me and my plans and my desires and my conveniences, my comforts and my expectations than he does. And then when we find that we have a God like that, then we are fine with worshiping him. But when our God does not measure up to our expectations, then we want to complain against him. The problem is that we refashion a God in our own making and we think far too highly of ourselves and far too less of God and of others. And you know what the cure for complaining is? It's just pure and simply having the mind of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And if I really think as highly of other people as I should, if I really think of as highly of Christ as I should, then what would there be to complain about? Let me ask you that. If I really think as highly of others and of Christ as I should, then what do I have to complain about? The answer is I have nothing to complain about. Because if I'm thinking as highly of Christ and of others as I should, then I would have no unmet expectations and I would never be inconvenienced because it really doesn't matter what happens to me or what I do. What matters is what happens to others and what Christ has done. So all the inconveniences and all the unmet expectations, all of those things cause me to complain, but it's because I have an exalted view of myself and a very low view of God. Consider Paul's example. Do you remember going through the book of Acts? Do you remember what happened in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 16, right in the city of Philippi to Paul? He had a really warm welcome from Lydia. He had a warm welcome from the slave girl. And he had a warm welcome from the Philippian jailer. But Paul didn't receive that warm of a welcome from the from the owners of that demon-possessed slave girl, when he cast the demon out of there, they saw that their hope of profit was gone. So those business leaders took the Paul and Silas and they drug them down before the city magistrates and they had them beaten and whipped and put in prison in violation of 
all of Paul's rights as a Roman citizen, had his had him put into prison, and then afterwards Paul was released. But do you read anything in the book of Acts chapter 16 of a complaint from the Apostle Paul? And then as you're going through the book of Acts, what do you see Paul suffer? He suffers being attempted killing on uh, people attempting to kill him because he was preaching Christ. So he's suffering persecution, beatings, imprisonments for the name of Christ. People are hounding him. His his co-workers are deserting him like John Mark. His friends are leaving them. Christians are sort of sniping at him. Then even you get into the book of Philippians and you find there were people who were preaching the gospel in Rome just to do Paul harm. And yet anywhere in the book of Acts, anywhere in the all of Paul's writings, do you ever read a word of complaint from the Apostle Paul? Once? Can you think of one time that the Apostle Paul complained about anything? I can mention him, I can remember him mentioning people who abandoned him. Demas, for instance, having loved this present world has forsaken me. I can remember the Apostle Paul talking about his beatings and talking about the shipwrecks and talking about the hardships and the hunger and the thirsting and the day and the night and the cold and the the heat and all of the exposure to the elements and all that he suffered. He talks about these things, but never once in reading them do you think, oh, Paul, you're, you're complaining once again. Never in a spirit of complaining. So in Philippians chapter 2, when we read, do all things without complaining or disputing, we are reading this not from my pen, thankfully, but from the pen of a man who actually lived a life free from complaining. Because never in any of his writings and never in anything written about Paul do we ever see somebody who was a grumbler. Not once. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to look at, last week we looked at just the command to do all things without grumbling or disputing what that was. We looked at the Old Testament backdrop that Paul had in mind with the children of Israel being led through the wilderness with Moses. Today we're going to look at the three reasons that Paul gives us for not complaining. The three reasons that Paul gives us for not complaining. Beginning at verse 15, Paul gives us an ethical reason, an evangelistic reason, and an eternal reason. Verse 15, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That's the ethical reason for not complaining. That you would prove yourselves to be blameless. Then Paul gives us an evangelistic reason because we appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life. And then Paul gives an eternal reason for not complaining. So that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. I was tempted to take this and divide it into two parts, but that would make you complain that it took us three weeks instead of the expected two to get through the passage. So we're going to jump right in. We're going to look at all three of those reasons today. An ethical reason first, verse 15. So that, that's a purpose clause. Paul's saying this is why you are to do all things without complaining. So that, or in order that, you might prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God. There's something about somebody who does not complain that demonstrates the blamelessness and the innocence that should mark every child of God. And conversely, when I do complain, I actually prove myself not to be blameless and not to be innocent. Now, what do the words blameless and innocent mean? The word blameless, amemptos is the word, it means without defect or without a a mark or a scar on it. It meant to be free from a defect in workmanship or free from defect in character. Something that was innocent, the word innocent literally means unmixed or, or, or pure, like they would use that to refer to metal that was unalloyed, 
that was not mixed with other types of metal, or they would use it to refer to wine that was unmixed with water, an undiluted wine. So if a wine was pure, because in those days they would take water, they would mix in a little bit of wine to clean out the germs and to make it the water drinkable. If a wine was unmixed, if it was pure wine, they would use this word. But when this word was used of something of someone's character, it literally means innocent. And what it means is an unmixed character. What you see is what you get. The type of person who is just innocent, straightforward, unmixed. There's no hidden agenda, no hidden motives, no hidden personas, no hidden faces. There's it's a very uncomplex individual. Have you ever met somebody who's just simple? And what we don't we don't I don't mean simpleton. And I don't mean somebody who's stupid or somebody who's um, sort of dopey. Not that type of simple, but the type of person whose character you just look at it and say, that person is just a pure individual. Just bordering on naive. What you see is what you get. And they just take everything at face value. And everybody takes them at face value. Have you ever met that type of a person? That's the type of character that Paul is describing. Somebody who's just pure. They're unmixed. They don't have all of the corruption. Children sometimes, you get this with children, before they have a chance to be exposed to all the corruption of the world and they have all of the things to worry about that plague us and worrying about making a living and worrying about whether the Middle East is going to be there tomorrow or whether an American city is going to be there, before they have all of this stuff that gets into their mind and into their character, you get children who are just, they're, they're that innocence, that childhood innocence where life is all about Legos. And life is all about Legos and a banana pie. Or Legos and ice cream. And it's just that pure, undefiled, unmixed innocence. That's what Paul's saying you and I are to be. That type of a child of God. Unmarked by defect. And just an, an innocent individual. Pure. Does that mean that we're to be perfect? Can we be perfect? Does Paul have in mind perfection? He doesn't have in mind perfection. You can have somebody, my children aren't perfect, but there was a time when they had this, still, some of them still have this childhood innocence where all of the things of the world just don't plague their mind anymore. He's not talking about moral perfection. He's talking about a life that is lived where it characterizes the child of God, where the outside world looks at it and the outside world doesn't see this big mark of complaining right on the life. It's just a blameless life. They don't look at you and think, oh, he's a complainer. He's a whiner. We are to be blameless and innocent, children of God, in the midst, Paul says, of a crooked and perverse generation. The word crooked is skolios in the Greek. It means bent, curved, not holding to a norm. It's not straight. It's like scoliosis. That's the word we get from that Greek word skolios. It means curved or bent, something that's abnormal and it's bent out of shape. That's the word crooked. I went at a friend in... I almost said girlfriend. I could use the term girlfriend because this was before I was saved and when I actually thought that dating was something that a, a person should do. But I actually had a girlfriend when I was in seventh grade. She had scoliosis. She wore a back brace to keep her back straight. And her spine was curved. And she had this metal brace that she wore around to correct that abnormal curvature of the spine. That's the type of idea that Paul has in mind when he talks about a crooked and perverse generation. It is bent. It's crooked. It doesn't hold to the norm. It's not straight. And when the word was used to describe somebody's character, it meant somebody who was morally bent. Somebody who was morally not right. They're not straight. They don't walk in straight paths. They're bent. They're crooked. They're abnormal. We live in the midst of a crooked and a perverse, and that word 
means the similar something similar to skolios, but it actually is a more active word. Skolios describes the inward disposition, something that's bent or not right, abnormal, crooked. Perverse describes it's more active, and it actually describes the outward manifestation of being crooked. Somebody who is crooked inside lives a perverse life. And you can tell if somebody is crooked on the inside, if they live a perverse life, then they're crooked. Now how apt is it that the Apostle Paul would describe his world as crooked and perverse? Friends, we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Look around you and what two words would you use to describe the world in which you live? Crooked and perverse. Do you think it's worse today than it was in Paul's day? People who think that. You think abortion's bad today? You think it's, you think homosexuality's bad today? You think immorality's rampant today? You think people are hostile against Christians today in our world? Friends, all of the, all of our society's debauchedness and depravity and, and wretchedness doesn't hold a candle to first century Roman civilization. We are actually a very moral people in the United States compared to Paul's world. Paul knew what it meant to walk out your door and see immorality everywhere that you looked and to have it be so much a part of the culture that you had churches like Corinth. To be so much a part of the culture that it just presses in on the church. And that's why in the New Testament you get all of these commands about living holy lives and fleeing from immorality and holding to a standard and to doctrinal truth because in Paul's days it was worse than it is in our day. And Paul said to the Philippians, we live in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. And so do we. So there is an ethical reason why you and I should not complain. And why is it? So that we might be amongst a wicked and perverse generation, a crooked generation, we might be the straight ones. Because in a world of darkness, we're the light. And in a world of perversity, we're the ones that are innocent. And in a a crooked world, we're the ones that are supposed to be straight. And if you're a child of God and if you're a complainer, then what you actually demonstrate is not blamelessness and innocence, but you actually join forces with a wicked and perverse, a crooked and perverse generation. Remember the phrase crooked and perverse was what Moses used to describe the children of Israel who were complainers. And here Paul uses it to describe the world. He says we live in the midst of this type of a generation and as children of God we're to be blameless, we're to be innocent in the midst of them. And notice that the Apostle Paul doesn't say that we live by them or we live near them or we live around them. Where do we live? Right in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Friends, you and I are neck deep in perversion in our world. And God didn't design salvation to take us out of the world. He actually designed salvation to take the world out of us because He wants to put us in the world and then He wants us to shine like lights right in the midst of the darkness. And that's the second thing. First, Paul gives us an ethical reason to be blameless and to be innocent. Second, an evangelistic reason. Look at the next phrase that he gives. Among whom, that is among the wicked and the perverse, or the crooked and the perverse, you appear as lights in the world holding forth or holding fast the word of life. We appear as lights, and the word is luminaries. It was used of stars. And it's a great analogy, friends. Christians appear in a world of darkness just like stars in the sky. You walk out under a night sky and you see all of these stars, and you understand that we, surrounded by darkness, there are these glimmers of hope out on the horizon and up in the sky. And that's the word that Paul uses. We appear like light. Surrounded by darkness, we are lights. And we are surrounded by people who walk in darkness, who have no light in them, who are children of darkness. 
They're darkened in their understanding. This is the description that Scripture gives of an unsaved world. And among all of them, surrounded by that darkness, you and I are to appear as lights right in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. God didn't take you out of the world. God left you in the world so that you could be immersed, surrounded by all of these people who are locked in darkness so that you could shine forth the light. In the Old Testament, light was used as an analogy of the Messiah. In the New Testament, it's used as us as children of... We're said, we once were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord, Ephesians 5.8. So walk as children of light. Light is something that characterizes us now. It never characterized us when we were unsaved. And now that we're saved, God says, I put you right in the midst of darkness so that you would shine like a light. Holding forth or holding fast the word of truth. Some of your translations read holding forth. Some of your translations read holding fast. I think the King James says holding forth. My translation says holding fast. So which one is it? Holding forth or holding fast? In all fairness, the word could be translated either way. Both of them are a fair translation. And quite frankly, both of those translations would make sense in the context. It is true that as light shining in the midst of darkness that we have to hold fast to the word of life. Because if we don't hold fast and strive together for the faith of the gospel and hold on to the truth and promote the truth and preach the truth and love the truth and hold on to it and uphold it, then it'll crumble. So we have to hold fast to the word of truth. But other times, particularly in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, when Paul speaks of holding fast to something, he uses a different Greek verb than he does here. So in all likelihood, I think that what the Apostle Paul is talking about is not holding fast something, but holding forth something. Because what is the word of life? It is the word of the gospel or the word preached, the word of truth, this word which is pure and undefiled, which gives us spiritual life, you and I are to hold this forth as light shining because this is the word of light and the word of light. And this is light to a world locked in darkness. And so we are to hold it forth. And part of the evangelistic thrust is you and I holding forth this. Now, whether you believe it's holding forth or holding fast, just catch this, friends. On top of Paul's mind is the necessity of or this concern for evangelism. We are to appear as lights in a lost world. And there is nothing that snuffs out our witness faster than complaining. Because you know what the unsaved world does when they see a Christian who complains? They say, that's what Jesus does for you? Turns you into a complainer? And you want me to join you on a Sunday morning with other complainers? Because I get eight hours of this every day, Monday through Friday... I get quite enough of the bickering and the complaining and the grumbling and the carping and all of that. Every day I'm surrounded by that in the world. Everywhere I go, I come home and I'm surrounded by it. Now you want me to take another two or three hours out of my week and join you with other people who complain about other things? It just snuffs out our witness just like that. Paul says we are to not complain because it has evangelistic implications. You cannot appear as a light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation if we join the wicked and crooked and perverse generation in complaining. And so there's an evangelistic concern. Not only the ethical reason, but the evangelistic reason. You and I have no idea how much damage we can do to the cause of the Gospel by our words. You realize that? I have a friend who just recently went through a horrible church experience. The church he was in. His father's unsaved. And so I asked him, I said, have you... How, do you, have your parent, how have your parents handled seeing what's gone on here? And he said, well, we don't, we don't tell them very much about what we had to deal with at all. I said, well, when you talk to them, how do you, how do you handle it? What do you say? And he said, we're very measured in what we say. We don't complain. We just say, hey, this has happened. Had some rough times. We went through this. We keep it as general as we can, and we don't say anything about it because 
what he wants to do is not to spoil the witness of every Christian to his unsaved father in what he says. So he doesn't mention anything about it, doesn't complain about it, because he knows that his words and his complaining could have negative implications on his father's trusting in Jesus Christ. He knows he's a light in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. So he doesn't complain about anything that he's gone on because he doesn't want to spoil the witness to his father. Let me ask you, how do you talk around unbelievers? Some of us actually, friends, we need to be remember this. Some of us drop our guard around unbelievers in the use of our tongues. Because in the presence of unbelievers, it's a lot easier to say things unguardedly and not have it judged the same as if we said the same things around believers. We're actually a lot more likely to complain around unbelievers than we are around believers. Because when we complain around believers, we know they have the standard, they have the light, they understand, they see what I'm doing. But it's around unbelievers that we need to be particularly careful about our complaining. Why? Because we can't appear as lights in a world of darkness. So there's the ethical concern, the ethical reason. Second, Paul gives us an evangelistic reason. And then third, and I wish I had a whole Sunday to develop just this one point because this is beautiful. There is an eternal reason for not complaining. Look at verse 16. We're to hold fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. So that in the day of Christ, now listen, day of Christ and day of the Lord are two different things in the New Testament in the Bible. They're not the same thing. There's the day of the Lord, and when the Scripture speaks of the day of the Lord, it's talking about a a day of judgment, a day of accountability upon unrepentant, wicked individuals. Without reference to believers, we do not participate and suffer through the day of the Lord, which Scripture describes as a day of darkness and a day of judgment and a day of woe. Instead, we get to participate in the day of Christ, which is a different day. So in the New Testament, when it speaks of the day of Christ, Paul and other authors describe a day with reference to believers, a day of rejoicing and a day of reward. But then there's the day of the Lord, and they're two different things. So remember, the day of the Lord has to do with unbelievers. The day of Christ has to do with believers. Look back at Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it, what? Until the day of Christ Jesus. And what is in view there? Believers are in view there. Our reward is in view there. Our final consummation with Christ is in view there. Look at chapter 1, verse 10. Paul says, So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. What's in view? Once again, it's believers. Look over at chapter 3, verse 20. Here's an element of the day of the Lord or the day of Christ for us that I'm looking forward to. Our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our body, the body of our humble estate, into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. So that's the day of Christ. So the day of Christ in Philippians 1.6, and even here in Philippians 2, verse 16, is reference to believers. It's a day of rejoicing. So what is going to be our rejoicing on the day of Christ? Paul says, I want you to not complain so that you might be holy, that you might be blameless, that you might be innocent, children of God, demonstrating your salvation, shining like lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, so that on that day, when Christ is glorified with His saints, Paul says, I might boast or I might rejoice. And the word boast could be used of sinful boasting, but that's not how Paul's using it. Paul's using it in another sense, that of rejoicing in the presence of something. So what was it that was going to cause his rejoicing? It was people. 
Look at chapter 4, verse 2 of Philippians. Sorry, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown. To the Thessalonians, Paul says, Who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? For you are our glory and our joy. What was Paul expecting to see on the day of Christ? Paul was expecting to stand in the presence of Christ and see the Corinthians there, the Thessalonians there, the Philippians there, the Bereans there, the people in Jerusalem and Antioch, all of the people that he had served. And to be able to see the manifestation of the grace of God in each of these lives and the impact that he had had in each of these persons' lives and the impact that each of these people had had in somebody else's life. And Paul says, on that day I would rejoice. But there is this danger, and it's a real danger, and the Apostle Paul seems genuinely threatened by this, that he might on the day of Christ find out that he had run in vain and that he had toiled in vain. The word run is a word that was used in an athletic event where an athlete would strive toward the finish line. It it speaks of exerting yourself and competing and running. It's one of Paul's favorite analogies. And then the word toil means to exert yourself to the point of weariness Weariness, the type of weariness where you feel like you have just been beat with a rod. That type of weariness. You ever been that tired? You just collapse and you feel like you can't do anything else because you've been beaten with a rod? That's the word for toil. Paul says, on the day of Christ, I don't want to stand in Christ's presence and find out that all of my labor was for nothing and all of my running was for nothing. Now this is stunning in this context because listen, We just read two weeks ago the verse that says, it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So who is it that works through us in laboring and striving? It's God. And what does God do? God does the work and produces the fruit. That's all His doing. He does it. But yet now Paul says, and I ask you, is it possible for me to actually run and for me to actually toil and then to show up on the day of Christ and have nothing to show for it. Because we ask this question, Paul, if it's God who does the laboring, which he always specified that it was, if it's God who does the laboring, and if it's God who's doing the running, and if it's God who's doing the working and the willing, and it's God who's producing the fruit, can you really, really fear that you might run in vain? How can it be in vain if it's God who does it? Isn't that a good question? There's no answer for it. I can't answer that for you. I wish I could. There is no answer for that. It's just that Paul really did was genuinely concerned for their spiritual well-being. Would it be possible that on the day of Christ that I would stand in His presence and say it was in vain that I went to Philippi, it was in vain that I suffered that, my running was in vain, my toil was in vain, it was all for nothing. See, Paul really does want the full reward for his service that he's offered to the Lord. And he doesn't want the Philippians complaining to strip him of his reward. And he doesn't want their carping and their not working out their salvation with fear and trembling to affect his joy on the day of Christ. Because what is going to be our joy? It's not going to be our business. It's not going to be our possessions. What is going to be our joy is people. The faithful mother who nurtures and serves her family is going to show up on the day of Christ and she is going to rejoice and see the fruit of her labor. And the faithful father who disciples his children and serves his children and teaches his children is going to show up on the day of Christ and see the fruit of his labor. And the faithful Sunday school teacher and the faithful music leader and the faithful deacon and the faithful pastor and the faithful missionary, we're all going to show up and see the fruit of our labor. 
Just last night, I was reading a letter that we got from one of our missionary families in this church, the Belches. And on the back of the letter, as they're on home assignment now, so they're in Spokane, on the back of the letter are all these pictures of the groups that they met with before they came back from the mission field, back to Spokane. And they sent this out, and so there's a picture of all of the men who have been discipled by Dave, and there's a, a picture of all of the ladies. There's got to be 30 of them in each of these pictures. They're close to 30 in each one of these pictures. All of the ladies that have been discipled by Lois, and then the different elders that have become elders since they planted the church there in that area. And I looked at that, and I, I thought, was thinking of what I'm doing this morning, and I thought to myself, friends, we support them every month, and by helping to keep them on the mission field, we're sharing in that labor. And we're going to show up on the day of Christ. And we're going to, who's going to be our crown of rejoicing on the day of Christ? We are all going to be somebody's crown of rejoicing, and somebody's going to be our crown of rejoicing. There is a pastoral concern that Paul has in this text and a personal concern. He's given us three reasons why you and I should live a life free of complaining. Ethical, blameless, and innocent. Evangelistic, because we appear as lights amongst an unbelieving and dark world. And then an eternal reason, so that on the day of Christ, I may not show up and find that I have lost everything because I've complained or that I've caused somebody else to lose everything because I have not progressed in the faith. That's an eternal significance to the words that we speak and the complaining that we do. It carries eternal ramifications. That's why we need to be careful about it. Paul's very serious. He looks into the day of Christ and he says, you're complaining. Philippians, you're complaining. Has impact upon the day that I stand in the presence of Christ and receive reward. That's heavy, isn't it? That's significant. That how I progress in the faith And my complaining can actually impact the day of Christ and the rejoicing of somebody else that goes on there. That's heavy. That's heavy stuff. kind of gives you a whole eternal perspective on the use of my mouth and the use of my tongue. It gives me an eternal perspective on those things. Now, Paul has a pastoral concern and a personal concern. Here's his pastoral concern real quick. Any father, any mother, any pastor, any elder can sympathize with the Apostle Paul. Anybody who's ever had charge over a group of people and they're going to be given account on the day of Christ over a group of people knows that there is no greater desire that a pastor or an elder or a missionary can possibly have than to know that the people that have been committed to their charge are progressing in their faith, growing in holiness, loving the Lord, and walking in obedience. As John says in 3 John, chapter, uh, 3 John verse 4, there's no greater joy than to know that my children walk in truth. And that's what Paul wants. He wants to know that those who he's led to Christ have progressed in the faith, that they're continuing on, and that on the day of Christ they will stand there and cause him great joy. That's a pastoral concern. That's a pastor's heart. There's no, no greater desire I have than that every person who's part of this body, a Kootenai Community Church, would grow in the faith and progress in holiness and last all the way through your Christian life being a witness to those around you so that on the day of Christ Jesus I would rejoice over what God did through you and that you would rejoice over what God did through me, and that we would all rejoice over what God did through all of us. That's the pastoral concern. But then there's the personal concern, and this is where it boils down to you and I. How do the words that I speak impact that future day? And they do. Jesus said we give an account for every idle word on the day of judgment. And complaining is not idle words. They're actively active words. Not just our idle words, but our active words. There's a personal concern. This has been very convicting to me. I don't know if it's been convicting to you, 
but I've had to reevaluate everything that I say and how I say it and catch myself. I don't know how many, I can't even count to you how many times I've had to catch myself this last week and remind myself what I'm saying has eternal consequences for the good or for the ill. So that's the pastoral concern and the personal concern. Why do we not complain? So that we might be blameless and innocent. So that we might have the evangelistic impact that we should have and be lights in the midst of darkness. And so that we may adequately and rightly rejoice on the day of Christ Jesus when we stand before Him and He is glorified with His saints. And as somebody who lives in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, I say the faster that that day comes, the better. And may it even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank You for this reminder, and timely as it is from Your Word, Lord, we are grateful that You have given to us Your Spirit and that You work in us to will and to do that which pleases You so that our tongues may honor and glorify You in everything that we say. That is our desire, and we pray that You would make it to be so in our lives. Convict us and encourage us and strengthen us, and as we resolve again to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling and to do it without grumbling, we pray that You would work that in us so that we might be blameless and innocent children of God, proving to us and to everyone around us that we belong to you and that we are innocent in that respect. We do ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.